Well, uh, I don't know if this will come as sad news to you or as good news to you, but today we finish up our series in Ecclesiastes, the Bible's most dark and depressing book of all. Uh, for, for, for my part, I'm sad to see it go. I've really enjoyed, even though, the, even though it's really dark, I've really enjoyed seeing things more clearly because of it. It's a book that has helped us to put on death as a kind of glasses that help us to see everything else in our experience. Now before we get into uh, this final sermon on Ecclesiastes today, I also want to give you a quick commercial for what's coming next. So we're still in a wisdom series, still unpacking together all year what it is to live in the world as it is, not as we wish it was, live in the world as it is with wisdom, with eyes that are open and aware, with, with, with minds that are paying attention. Wisdom is a skill for living well in the world, and we're trying to build it together through our time in God's Word this year. Now, the next step in our wisdom series is going to be uh, the, the book of James. It's a New Testament book that looks a lot like, feels a lot like Proverbs. That's why it's thrown into this series. It's the closest thing that the New Testament has to the books that we've been studying in the Old Testament uh, since early on this year. So starting next week through up until uh, Advent season, we're going to be working verse by verse through the letter of James. This will be a great week for you to read that book, to get your mind in the right place, to start thinking about some of the themes we're going to cover together in that series. Then, mid-September, we'll take a very short break because we're coming up on our fifth anniversary as a congregation. Hard to believe, but it's true. We're going to be celebrating five years of life together in uh, mid-September. We've got a couple of things we're going to do to commemorate that uh, wonderful occasion. So on the 13th of September, we're going to be hosting uh, a man named Scott Patty, who pastors the church that started our church. So Scott Patty pastors Grace Community Church in Brentwood, Tennessee, just south of here, about 10 miles from here. Um, Scott was a pastor to many of us for many years before we began our congregation here. Scott is the one who helped us to sort of conceive of what this church could be in this part of town and who has guided us along every step of the way. And so at the end of five years together, we've invited him to come and reflect on what it was like to be at five years in the life of the church that he pastors, Grace Community Church, and specifically to encourage us about the next five years. What can he tell us from a 20-plus year track record as a church Uh, what can he tell us that'll help us get ready to do what we're going to need to do to be faithful for the next five years? So on September 13th, we're going to welcome him. And then on September 20th, we're going to party. That's our birthday. So it's close enough. It's the closest Sunday to the day that we began as a congregation. So we're going to spend some time reflecting back over the, uh, the years, what we can be thankful for, what God has done in our life together. And then after the service, uh, we're going to eat. We're going to stuff ourselves with delicious food appropriate to our southern location, uh, not going to tell you exactly what it's going to be, but you're not going to want to miss it. It's going to be delicious. Uh, we're, going to, we're going to go straight from here over to Severe Park and spend the afternoon together, uh, feasting both on delicious food and on wonderful memories uh, of our time together. You're not going to want to miss it. So that's what's coming this fall, and we're, uh, we're excited to celebrate together. Now, for today, we go back to Ecclesiastes. We go back to letting the darkness that is the reality of death influence how we see everything in our world. Everything that we experience makes more sense 
if we look at it in light of the fact that we aren't going to live forever. That's the theme we've been trying to pull out of this book week after week after week. We started at the very beginning. We noticed that, that at the beginning of his book, the second verse in the whole book, the preacher, that's what he's called here, the guy who wrote the book, throws up his hands, looks around, he's looking around everything in life, he throws up his hands and he tells you, in verse 2 of the first chapter of this book, exactly what he's going to tell you for the rest of the book. Vanity of vanities. Everything is vanity. Everything is empty, meaningless, without purpose. The rest of the book has been pointing to us to one after another, after another example of why this is true. He's shown us that wisdom, that work, that pleasure, that money, that even justice, even these things are just empty. Because these things don't last, and we still end up returning to dust. In our text this morning, the preacher concludes his book with exactly the same line that he began with. After all this journey through the good things of life, living a life in which he said no to nothing and no one, the preacher comes to verse 8 of chapter 12 and he tells us, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. Not a happy ending. Not really. And yet, for all the bleakness in this book, for all the despair in this man's life, for all the despair he's hoping to stir up in us by what he's written. There's another strain running through the whole book about death. This whole book about death has another thread. It's a book about death and the meaninglessness death spreads through our lives, but in another way, it's also a book about joy. There's several places. We've come across a few of them already in the text we've looked at earlier in the series. There's several places where the author will get to the end of a section where he's been unpacking the meaninglessness of something we tend to think is good. Gets to the end of it, says it's all vanity, and then says, enjoy yourself. Let me give you a few examples before we get to ours for this morning. Here's uh, chapter 2, verse 24. Just finished talking about how there's nothing good to be grabbed in pleasure, in wisdom, or in work. He's made those claims all through the chapter. At the end of the chapter 2, he says, so there's nothing better for a person than that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. Chapter 3, almost the same line. Chapter 3, verse 22 says, I saw that there's nothing better than that a man should rejoice in his work for that's his lot. You know when he said that? Right after he said the, that the fact that a guinea pig and a king end up in the same place means that humans don't matter any more than guinea pigs do. He's just said that. And then he says, so go enjoy yourself. Enjoy your work. That's your lot. In chapter 5, just after he's talked about how no matter how much money you get, it's always going to be emptiness. It's never going to fulfill you. He says this. 
What I've seen to be good and fitting is to eat and drink and find enjoyment in all the toil with which one toils under the sun the few days of his life that God's given him, for this is his lot. Everyone also to whom God has given wealth and possessions, the stuff that's empty, the stuff that's vain, and the power to enjoy them, these empty things, these vain things, and to accept his lot and rejoice in his toil, this is the gift of God. Wealth is meaningless. Enjoy your wealth. Chapter 8, same thing. He's just talked about injustice. How injustice means that justice is vanity. You're never going to get there. The powerful are always going to have power over the weak and the oppressed. So, chapter 8, verse 15, I commend joy. For man has nothing better under the sun but to eat and drink and be joyful. And in chapter 9, here's what he says. Enjoy life with the wife whom you love all the days of your vain life that he's given you under the sun. Because that's your portion in life and in your toil at which you toil under the sun. Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with your might. For there's no work or thought or knowledge or wisdom in Sheol, the place of the dead, to which you're going. You see what he's doing here? Every time he goes to meaninglessness, he also goes to joy. It's not a naive book. It's the furthest thing from a naive book that there is in the scriptures. It shoots straight. It doesn't ask you to pretend that things aren't awful, that things aren't empty, that darkness doesn't win from his perspective under the sun. It doesn't ask you to pretend that those things aren't true. In fact, he tells you they're true, and then on the basis of these things being true, he tells you to have joy. So how? How do we live with joy? It's a book about vanity and at the same time a book about joy. How do we live with joy in a world that's so full of vanity? That's the question for this morning. Three things that we've got to remember if we want to get there. Two of them pointed to by this book. Another pointed, or Two of them pointed to directly in this book. Another pointed to by the whole book as it points us forward to Christ. We need to remember our death. We need to remember our creator. We need to remember our Redeemer. I want to begin by reading our text for this morning. It's going to be in chapter 11 of Ecclesiastes. We're going to go through the first part of chapter 12. And I want to ask you now to stand with me in honor of God's Word while I read. I'm going to start off in verse 8 of chapter 11 and then read through verse 8 of chapter 12. This is the Word of the Lord. So if a person lives many years, let him rejoice in them all. But let him remember that the days of darkness will be many. All that comes is vanity. Rejoice, O young man, in your youth, and let your heart cheer you in the days of your youth. Walk in the ways of your heart in the sight of your eyes, but know that for all these things, God will bring you into judgment. Remove vexation from your heart. Put away pain from your body, for youth and the dawn of life are vanity. Remember also your Creator in the days of your youth, before the evil days come and the years draw near of which you will say, I have no pleasure in them. Before the sun and the light and the moon and the stars are darkened and the clouds return after the rain, in the day when the keepers of the house tremble and the strong men are bent and the grinders cease because they're few and those who look through the windows are dimmed, and the doors on the street are shut, when the sound of the grinding is low, 
and one rises up at the sound of a bird, and all the daughters of song are brought low. They are afraid also of what is high, and terrors are in the way. The almond tree blossoms, the grasshopper drags itself along, and desire fails, because man is going to his eternal home, and the mourners go about the streets. Before the silver cord is snapped, or the golden bowl is broken, or the pitcher is shattered at the fountain, or the wheel broken at the cistern, and the dust returns to the earth as it was, and the spirit returns to the God who gave it. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. All is vanity. This is the word of the Lord. You can be seated. If we want to live with joy in a world that is full of vanity, meaninglessness, emptiness, things that don't deliver or survive, the first thing we've got to remember is our death. That's been the main thrust of the whole book, and it comes back up again here in references to darkness and vanity. You see the first call to remember comes out in verse 8. A call to joy starts the verse. If a person lives many years, let him rejoice in them all. The same thing he's been calling for over and over throughout the book. Rejoice. If you want to rejoice, though, remember that the days of darkness will be many. And in this book, darkness is death and all of death's friends. All of the things that death sets loose in our life. All the things that don't last because death ends our lives. It's the same thing he had just said in chapter 9, which we just read. Do what you do while you can because there's nothing to do in Sheol, in the place of the dead, where you're going. Do it now. Enjoy your life now. Your life isn't going to last. got to notice that this appeal to joy comes mixed right in with the call to remember darkness. I want to show you where the connection pops up and then we want to talk about this connection. What's the connection between joy and darkness? I already pointed you to verse 8. We're called to rejoice in as many years as we live to make the most of life while it lasts and we're called to remember that there will be days of darkness while we do that. He's saying to enjoy your life fully You enjoy it not by pretending the darkness isn't there, but by recognizing the darkness is there. This whole darkness that the book has been unpacking, chapter after chapter after chapter. You want to have joy, you've got to remember the darkness. Verse 9 calls us to rejoice again. Rejoice in your youth while you're young. Rejoice while you're alive. Go out. Do what you want. Not things that displease God. Remember that God will bring you into judgment, but still... Enjoy yourself. That's verse 9. But then verse 10 brings darkness back into it. You want to have joy, then you're going to need to remember that the days of youth are vanity. Rejoice in your youth, but your youth is vanity. It's not going to last. Verse 10 is really interesting to me. It says, remove vexation from your heart. Stop being so stressed about everything. Put away pain from your body. Stop carrying the burdens that you're carrying that are weighing you down. Just lighten up. But then notice how he justifies this call to lighten up. Lighten up because, or for, youth and the dawn of life are vanity. You get that connection? He's saying if you want to have no stress, you need to know that you have no purpose, no meaning, no life that's going to last. Isn't that the reason to stress? Isn't that what he's been so stressed about throughout this whole book? This is an angsty book. 
if you don't want to be stressed, you've got to remember that your young life is vain. What is that? How is it that recognizing darkness and vanity and the ultimate reality of death is the path to joy, to stress-free living? Well, I think to answer that question, the first thing we've got to notice is, that, is who he's talking to. He's talking to the young. Verse 9, rejoice, O young man, in your youth. He's talking to the young as an older man who's already been there who's been through everything, and who's had everything that the young think that they want out of life. And now he's trying to give them wisdom while they're still young enough to benefit from it. Before they have the things they think are going to make them happy, he's trying to tell them, I've had those things, they don't deliver. What is it that keeps the young? Remember, that's who he's talking to here. What is it that keeps the young, most of you, from enjoying your life now. Isn't it that, isn't, isn't what keeps us from enjoying the present, that especially when we're young, we haven't arrived, so to speak, we keep comparing the things we have now, the life that we have now, to the life that we want that we don't have yet? Isn't that we hold up our dreams for the future, as the measuring stick or the standard by which we judge our present. And we think we can't rest. We can't really have joy until we get here. What keeps us from enjoying our present is the future that we don't have. The future spouse. The better spouse. The better job. More money. And what this guy is telling us is that we could get where, what we're after and it still isn't going to be enough because the future doesn't bring fulfillment. The future brings death. None of these things that we think are going to make for a fulfilling life, none of the things that we are for, which, for which we are delaying gratification now, none of the things that we are, that we are working towards at great cost to ourselves, at great cost to our joy now, None of the things we're stressing over now are going to be able to protect us from death. Now, he's trying to tell us that now so that we don't stress so much over all of those things. And here's an analogy for it. This is going to be borderline cliche, maybe all the way cliche, but I'm going to use the glass half full, half empty analogy and tweak it a little bit. I think what he's trying to say, I think what he's getting at here is that the young spend time and energy trying to fill up their glass. All right, so if, if... if the starting point for our lives is a glass that's got some water in it and some space in it, some air, half full, half empty. When you're young, you're fixated on the empty part. And you really think, I can fill that up. Just wait till I finish my training. Just wait till I get that next raise. Just wait till I get that house I've been wanting. You think that you can fill it up. And so you spend your time and your energy, your stress trying to fill it up. You never imagine when you're young that absolute emptiness is possible. You assume, you take for granted that the half full part of your glass is staying right there. 
that life only ever moves one direction. We only ever get more and more and more. When you're young, even if you know that death is out there, the fact that it feels like it's decades away, that may as well be an eternity. You just can't imagine it. What you imagine is filling up that glass. What you aren't seeing, what this guy is trying to tell us, is that absolute emptiness is not just possible, but guaranteed. Every single glass ends up bone dry. Every single life. The surprising thing is not that we haven't been able to fill up our glass yet. The surprising thing is that we're able to have joy at all along the way. So enjoy what you have when you have it. That's his message. Remember the darkness, the vanity of your youth while you're young so that you can enjoy what you have while you have it. So that you'll stop believing the lie that the key to your joy is in what you don't have yet. In other words, to be more joyful, you need to be more morbid. There's a really interesting book that I read earlier this year by a guy named Atul Gawande. He's a uh, surgeon who also has taken to writing best-selling books. This one is called Being Mortal. It's a book about end-of-life care, about how messed up end-of-life care is in our country right now, uh, about how weird it is that we treat the aging and the dying in the way that we do, about how things could be better than what they are. Along the way, he talks about some really interesting studies, one of which remarkably mirrors what our author is pointing us to here in Ecclesiastes 11. Cites this study that has measured the effect in people of their ability to recognize the fragility of life. The effect of people's perspective. Whether they recognize the fragility of life or they don't recognize the fragility of life. So there's lots of ways you could come to recognize it. It could be a brush with death. You have a bad car accident. You realize that that could have gone a different way. It could be that you get a terminal diagnosis. Uh, and you know that, and you, you even have a, a, a pretty much a, a, a expiration date for your life. It could come in a lot of different ways. But the underlying thing that these studies have noticed is that Joy in life and what we want out of life depends more on perspective than it does on age, than it does on what culture you're from, than it does on the circumstances of your life. So when you're healthy, when you're healthy and you've got decades to live, your focus is still on achievement. Your focus is on acquiring more. Your focus is on expanding your relationships and your opportunities. Your focus is on developing your skills. It's on, it's on delaying gratification sometimes for years, while you work towards something that you think will deliver. When you think you've got decades, you're willing to do that. But, this is a quote from his book, as your horizons contract, when you see the future ahead of you as finite and uncertain, your focus shifts to the here and now, to the everyday pleasures of life and to the people who are closest to you. Our author is telling us, don't wait till you get the terminal diagnosis to start focusing on the good things in your life right now. You have a terminal diagnosis. 
So the sooner in your life that you recognize that, the sooner you can get on to enjoying the things that are good in your life rather than living stressfully over the things you don't have yet in your life. So joy comes not so much despite of sorrow and vanity and death, but in light of sorrow and vanity and death. You see the connection now? If you want to have joy, you've got to recognize what he's talking about. Your life isn't going to last forever. But there's more. Like so far, this is fortune cookie kind of wisdom. This is the kind of stuff that you could get anywhere, right? That Just enjoy what you have while you have it. That's a common refrain. You've got to remember more than just the fact that you're going to die. You've got to remember the fact that you were made. You've got to remember your creator. This picks up in verse 1 of chapter 12. So the next remember. He's calling you to remember the darkness. Now he says remember also your creator in the days of your youth. Before the evil days come and the years draw near. Of which you will say I have no pleasure in them. This section takes us another step forward towards joy. This call to remember the creator. It comes at the top of one of the most beautiful poems in this book. Now, it's a strange poem. No one really knows exactly what all the details mean. You probably picked up on some of that strangeness as we were reading through it a moment ago. Uh, I read lots of different people talking about what they think it means. No one really knows and can agree. And honestly, with a poem like this one, you're not supposed to pin it down too tight. You want to step back and just see how the whole thing weighs on you. And the whole thing, once you read it, you know what it's talking about in general. It's talking about decay, about old age, about death. One of the most common ways of explaining it is that it's metaphorical language for the breakdown of the human body, for the isolation of the human life from the ins and outs of society. It's a picture of a house that's getting darker and darker, of a world of commerce out there that's getting closed off to you, becoming less and less relevant to other people. What he's saying, what he's saying is that you need to remember your Creator now before you're not young anymore, before you've lost the good things that the Creator has given you in your youth. Why? Because now you're enjoying good things that are given to you by the one who made you, by the one who knows you and what you need better than you do. The way this call to remember our Creator takes us one step closer to joy is in its reminder that the, that the things in your life are not accidental but chosen for you, given to you as a gift from one who knows you and loves you. So your tendency is to think about what you don't have yet when you're young and to feel like it's on you to get there. So you can treat the things you don't have yet sometimes as your failure. Evidence of your failure to be good enough to get those things. Evidence of a world or a deck that's just stacked against you. Always getting in your way. Bigger than your ability to overcome. You can fixate on the things you don't have and get angry. Or be shamed for your failure to get them. He's telling you, remember your creator. The things that are in your life now while you're young were given to you, chosen for you, selected for you by one who loves you. And he knows what you need. You can trust him that what's in your life now is what's good for you to have now. 
do it now. Because there will come a time when all you have are aches. All you have are aches in your joints. Aches in your bones. Aches in your heart. As you look back at what you once enjoyed. So enjoy what you have been given while it lasts because it isn't going to. That's the point of the poem. This raises a final tension, doesn't it? Basically what he's saying is, even if you remember your Creator, even if you obey Him and fully enjoy what He's given you, even then it won't be enough for you. It still won't last forever. Remember where we ended. The final capstone on the poem. He ends where he began. Vanity of vanities. All is vanity, says the preacher. Here's the way one scholar puts it. Sums up verse 8. I love this. In verse 8, with the experience of the whole book behind us, And finally, with this chapter's haunting pictures of mortality, to enforce the point, we come back to the initial cry, vanity of vanities, and find it justified. Nothing in our search has led us home. Nothing that we are offered under the sun is ours to keep. One of the things that we notice in life, if we're paying attention, is that the more we enjoy something, the more we love the good things of life, the more it hurts to lose them. So to enjoy life without a sense of sorrow over the future loss of it, to enjoy what we have now without fixating on how bad it's going to hurt when we don't have it anymore, What we need is to know that these things we enjoy now are just the beginning. Just a foretaste of something to come that will deliver because it will last forever. If you really want to enjoy this life, you need to know that its emptiness is not the end. That there's more to what's in this life that there must be. And that means we've got to remember our, our, not just our Creator, but our Redeemer. One of my favorite images that I've come across so far for, uh, for, for why Ecclesiastes, so now we're, we're stepping back out of the details of the book, wrapping up a series on it, looking at the whole thing, and we're asking, what's it doing here? How's it helping us? One of my favorite images I've come across for this book, and why it's here, how it helps us, is that it's kind of like a painting like, like the famous painter Rembrandt. I don't know that much about him, but I enjoy some of his work. Maybe you guys, a lot of you probably know more than I do about him, but I've got this reproduction of, of a Rembrandt painting in my office, of the prodigal son. One of, one of the things he's most known for is the way that he uses darkness and light through the colors that he chooses. So a lot of his paintings, maybe most of them, are really dark. And most of the canvas is covered in blackness. But the way that he uses that the darkness in the background is to draw your attention into the few places on the canvas that are illuminated, where there's light. He wants your eyes focused there. 
And Ecclesiastes functions in the rest of the Bible, in the whole story that the Bible's telling from beginning to end. Ecclesiastes functions as that black backdrop meant to focus in our attention, our eyes, to draw us to the figures that are in the light. What's in the light? Ecclesiastes has told us what we have to look for from any light that's worthy of the name. We need to look for something that can give us life. Something that won't end. Something that can take us from this world of shifting sands and plant us on a solid rock that won't be thwarted by anything. That's what we need. Ecclesiastes has prepared us to see that. Which is to say, friends, Ecclesiastes has prepared us to read John. So this time last year, all of last year, we were walking together through one of the earliest descriptions of Jesus' life and teaching. And here, here's, my, here's my homework assignment for you. Uh, because obviously we're not going to walk through John this morning. I think it would be a great thing for you to do this week to try to read the entire book of John this week. It's, it's not too big of a task. And try to do it thinking about Ecclesiastes. And I think you'll be surprised at how often the images John uses for Jesus make sense in light of the things Ecclesiastes has pointed us to. I want to just point you to a couple examples to whet your appetite and leave you to read John on your own. John begins with a beautiful poem about Jesus. He talks about him as the word who was made flesh. In verse 4 of John chapter 1, he talks about him as the light. He talks about him as the light who has come into the darkness. Think of Ecclesiastes. That the darkness could not overpower. In him was life, verse 4 says. And that life was the light of men. That's how he introduces Jesus. From there, he starts to unpack him and how he serves as a light that even the darkness of Ecclesiastes can't overpower. In chapter 2, we get the first one of what John calls signs, amazing things that Jesus did that point like signposts to why he came. What is he doing here? Who is he? What has he come to do? Well, the signs point us that way. And yet the first sign that John chooses to tell us about is strange. It seems so insignificant compared to the other things Jesus is going to go on to do. We know Jesus is going to give life to a dead man. He's going to open eyes that were blind. He's going to feed 5,000 people with one boy's snack lunch. But that's not where John starts. John starts his, his, his coming out onto the campaign event is a feast. Jesus shows up at a wedding that has petered out too early. And he turns water into the best wine that anyone there has ever tasted. And he says, in effect, that's what I came to do. I have come to establish a feast. What is that about? It would help to know the story into which Jesus comes. It would help to know this from Isaiah chapter 25. On this mountain... Isaiah writes, The Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine. There's your context for what Jesus did that day in Cana. Of well-aged wine, well-refined. And he will swallow up on this mountain. What's the party about? Why are we partying again? He will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples. 
the veil that is spread over all nations, the cloud that leaves everything in darkness, he will swallow up. What is that cloud? Ecclesiastes has already told us. He will swallow up death forever. And the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces and the reproach of His people He will take away from the earth. For the Lord has spoken. And then Jesus comes on the scene and He turns water into wine and He says, that's what I've come to do. The feast is here. And He goes on to say, the feast is me. He goes on to tell His friends that if you want to live forever, you've got to eat my flesh and drink my blood. I've got to die. I've got to give up my life so that you can live because death is what you deserve. Friends, here's the gospel. The death that Ecclesiastes describes to us in such vivid detail, it makes sense for us because what every single one of us has done on every single day that we've ever lived is treated our lives as if they belong to us, as if we're the reason that we were here as if we have the right to do with our lives what we want, as if it's okay for us not to remember our Creator. Every day of our lives, we have lived like we are responsible for our lives. And death hangs over every one of us as a great, big, all caps, no. You are not God. You are not too important not to exist. But Jesus, Jesus has come to die the death that our rebellion against God deserves. He's come to absorb that death in his body so that he can give himself to us as a feast that swallows up death. When he hung on the cross and cried out at the end of John, it is finished. He knew that he had once and for all drank down to the bottom the death that was meant for us. And when he rose again, when the tomb was empty that next morning, it was a promise to you, a promise to me, that if we will trust in him, well then what's set before us is a life now and forever in which we can feast knowing that the incomplete temporary joys of this life are just a foretaste of the feast that he has established for us for all time and for all eternity. Ecclesiastes was put here to whet our appetite for that feast. May God help us to claim that hunger and to yearn for Him. Father, we need Your Spirit to help us because we are so easily distracted by the cares of this world. We want so much more than what You've given to us. Our joys are so shallow and easily drunk down. So we pray that you would help us to live with a joy that testifies to your goodness that is is suited to the promise that you will give us a life that never ends, that Jesus is ours forever. We want to honor him and glorify him by the way we live in light of that promise. Help us to do that, Father, for your name's sake. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.